I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Karen Ledine, Director of the Lab for Research on Ethics, Aging, and Community Health, and an Assistant Professor in the Department of Occupational Therapy and the Department of Public Health and Community Medicine at Tufts University. Dr. Ledine has co-authored a perspective article on fairness in the allocation of lung transplants. Dr. Ledine, can you first walk us through the process that's been in place since 2005 for allocating lung transplants? Sure. In 2005, the policy for lung allocation in the United States was changed from a system that allocated lungs primarily based on waiting times to one that primarily allocated lungs based on a lung allocation score. And this was done in an effort to better balance equity and efficiency principles. Prior to 2005, the allocation was focused on waiting time, which was a first-come, first-serve approach. And now the new approach incorporates urgency as a primary criteria. The goals of the new policy were to reduce the number of deaths on the lung transplant list, to increase transplant benefit for lung recipients, and to ensure the efficient and equitable allocation of lungs. And briefly, the lung allocation score is used for candidates, lung candidates who are over the age of 12, and it's calculated using estimates of survival probability one year after transplant, as well as probability of survival on the waiting list. And the score itself is an adjusted scale from 0 to 100 that represents the weighted combination of those two factors. For candidates that are younger than 12, the priority score, which is intended to also incorporate urgency, and there's only two levels. There's a priority one, which is more urgent, and priority two, which is for the rest of the candidates. In addition to the priority levels and the lung allocation score, organs are allocated based on geographic zones, ABO match, and other criteria such as size and serology. You note in your article that patients younger than 12 were excluded from consideration for both adolescent and adult donor lungs because it wasn't clear whether that lung allocation score actually applied in children. Does that mean that the exclusion was based on the limits of available data or on medical considerations in children? To be clear, technically pediatric patients are not completely excluded from receiving adult donor lungs. They just don't receive the lung allocation score. And the reason for that, it's my understanding, is that it's largely because there was not enough available data about pediatric candidates and their outcomes. And that's largely just due to the the paucity of pediatric candidates. During the process which they were calculating the LAS score and they were validating it, they consulted with a large volume pediatric transplant center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and St. Louis Children's Hospital. And it was decided after that that until sufficient data became available, children would not receive an LAS score because there was just not enough sufficient data to validate it. In addition, I think the OPTN believed that pediatric patients were and are still better served with pediatric lungs because of size. And so their solution to not giving them an LIS score was to prioritize them for pediatric lungs, ultimately to increase geographic sharing of pediatric lungs and to introduce priority score to incorporate the criteria of urgency. On the medical side, one possible reason to exclude children is that lung transplantation in pediatric patients is often associated with high postoperative morbidity and mortality, largely because of the children's diagnoses, principally cystic fibrosis. So what is it about CF that limits the benefits of lung transplantation? Um, So excluding children, especially CF candidates, is controversial. Several studies, perhaps most famously Lou's study, which was published in 2007 in the New England Journal, 
suggests that there are minimal gains to children with CF, and this is minimal gains over alternative therapies. I think the primary reason for that is that medical therapies have improved dramatically, and so transplantation as a comparative therapy is not as advantageous as it used to be. But there are other reasons that children with CF may not be ideal candidates for transplantation. Some of that is due to the fact that many of them have been chronically ill for some time, and they have resistant infections that may increase morbidity and mortality post-transplantation. In addition, because of their significant chronic illness and because they've been sick over the time where they developed, they may be underdeveloped and quite small, and so they may not be good candidates for many larger lungs. However, as I said, this is a pretty controversial point. Some studies have found marginal benefits, whereas others have found pretty significant benefits. And it's worth noting that very few studies have taken into account quality of life and other factors for which there's just not a lot of data. But some suggest that if we were to take into account quality of life, transplantation would be a significant benefit for CF patients over medical treatment. You mentioned the size difference between children and adults. How does that affect the efficacy of the transplanted lung? I think that's an interesting question. First of all, the size, the problem in transplanting larger lungs into children is because they're test cavity is just not large enough to facilitate that organ. Doing lung transplants and reducing the lung inside is more complicated um, and it's technically challenging in some cases, but it is possible. And in many larger centers where they have a high volume of such cases, uh, they report very good outcomes. Certainly, it's not possible for every case. There may not be a match in size. That may not be possible at every center. So this may be a procedure that we should target to large volume centers that transplant many children, for example, and centers that have a lot of expertise in this area. But I think most importantly, it's important to remember that the scarcity of pediatric lungs, just in terms of how few there are relative to the children that are demanding it versus adult lungs that are become available, make it important for us to consider these types of treatments, even if they are not as ideal as a size match. You note that in the case of other organs, children are often given priority for transplantation. In those cases, how do they fare in terms of the transplants and in terms of their development thereafter? So for other organs, children are prioritized for a number of reasons. There are outcomes for many, for example, for kidney and liver transplantations. Many studies demonstrate significant improvements in survival and improved growth and development. Um, and in terms of quality of life for children, there's a substantial literature demonstrating this. I think especially for children who have not yet developed, this is really crucial in predicting their outcomes later in life, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. Although, you know, oftentimes we would like to use age as just another criteria, but I think it is really important. It's a pivotal time in these people's lives. In addition, there's a number of ethical arguments that are used in allocating other organs that haven't been really used in lung transplantation or lung allocation. And these include utilitarian arguments that would underscore the importance of lungs and of transplantation for children at this age in terms of their cognitive and their emotional and their physical development, in addition to egalitarian arguments that support giving all people equal chances of reaching a certain age in life. That's also called a fair innings argument. Literature from other organs suggests that there are gains, both in terms of development, but also in terms of quality of life and outcomes. 
As you explain in your article, according to the Accountability for Reasonableness, or A4R, framework, the long allocation process we now have is fair because it's transparent and revisable. Does a transparent and revisable process necessarily result in fair outcomes? It's a great question. I think if we tried, we might be able to think of a process that's transparent and revisable but unfair. For example, we might envision a process where there's a dictator in charge of allocating lungs and he or she may be transparent and may publicly declare how they are prioritizing and even revising their algorithm. But we might still consider this unfair because it does not reflect the concerns of stakeholders and there's no agreement on ethical principles or on the data relevant to make the decision. So I think transparency and revisability are important and they're necessary criteria but they may not be sufficient. Broadly, accountability for reasonableness, or A4R, presents us with a way of achieving fairness where there might not be an original consensus amongst the stakeholders or about a consensus about the ethical principles which should govern. So in the issue at hand, some may argue that children should be prioritized because they firmly believe in fair innings, whereas others may disagree, they may value efficiency more, and they may believe that because of the complications that we've discussed, it may be more efficient to transplant lungs into adults or adult lungs into adults. But accountable for reasonableness sets that aside and allows us to consider both ethical criteria as well as the data available. It allows us to agree on the relevant data and it allows us a fair deliberative process. In allowing a fair process, which everybody agrees is deliberative and incorporates all of the relevant criteria, we can agree that the outcome is fair because the process is one to which we've all agreed. I think a crucial part of this fair process is that it's transparent and it's revisable because transplantation is an evolving field and it needs to accommodate new data. Without that, we certainly might have concerns about the process. So I think we need to be both transparent and revisable, but additional factors are important as well, which is taking into account key stakeholders and a criteria for enforcement. Although you believe it's appropriate to revise the lung allocation process for children, you've opposed the sorts of legal and media appeals that have led to the current review by the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network. If legal and media appeals expedite the revision process and then the revisions are ultimately fair to all candidates, what's wrong with using them as a prod? It's true that in this case, the very public appeal to media and politicians and ultimately the courts expedited a change in organ allocation algorithm. And ultimately, this has called attention to an important issue. And in the sense that the latest media reports suggest that the patient, Sarah, is recovering from her second transplant, I think there were real benefits to this case. But as we wrote in our perspective, you know, no family can be faulted for going to great lengths for their, to save their daughter or a family member. But on a systemic level, these appeals undermine fairness and they may cause serious harm to other candidates on the list and to the transplant system itself. The problem with allowing such appeals is that not everybody has the resources to mount these appeals. And in addition, it leaves judges in the position to craft health policy and make these types of decisions not knowing perhaps the situation of other candidates who are similar, similarly situated or who may lose their priority when a certain candidate is bumped up on the list. The problem ultimately with the system as it existed before the recent changes was that there was no way for these types of candidates with serious concerns to appeal their positions because the OPTN through the, throughout the committee gave them no options and HRSA did not respond to their appeals. Um, so as we suggest in the perspective, and as it is currently the new policy, 
appeals to an expert panel, one that is able to better assess the merits of the case, is preferable to judges. Furthermore, they're in a better position to legislate changes, to enact change, and to consider all of the relevant factors. I think ultimately we need a system, and with the recent changes, we're moving closer to having a system that is responsive to concerns and to new information. And the system has to be able to accommodate cases in which the criteria are either not reflective of the patient, which there are currently ways to appeal, and also cases that demonstrate that the algorithm may be neglecting an important group. I think that's integral to being seen as fair and transparent, and I think that the organ transplantation system can achieve this with some of the recommendations that we've suggested. A fuller solution to these rationing problems would be to increase organ donation. What do you think are the best ways to make that happen? I think that's a very good question and one that many dedicated people are working on. As you know, there have been several health policy initiatives aimed at increasing organ donation among them, among the public as a whole, and also among minority groups. And those include education campaigns, as well as campaigns aimed at better streamlining the donation system in hospitals. However, despite these attempts, some recent studies suggest that there are better ways that we might be able to do that. One model is from Spain that encourages donation by uh, switching our default, so having organ donation be an opt-out rather than an opt-in system. Also, more comprehensive education about the organ donation process, a more culturally sensitive and tailored approach to discussions of organ donation across different groups, and better engagement of patients' social networks and their communities in efforts to raise organ donation and donor designation rates being promising. From a healthcare perspective, some people argue that many organs are unnecessarily discarded and that we could benefit from those organs. For example, in a recent study, Halpern argues that the transplant community can make better use of organs after circulatory determination of death. So that is, I think that's also a promising avenue that that should be explored. And then finally, I think within the healthcare system, conversations between physicians and their patients in well visits about organ donation could do a lot to increase donor designation rates and ultimately organ donation rates as well. Thank you, Dr. Ledeen.